Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome to episode 100 of Historically Thinking. Please cue confetti and cheers from the audience at this point. Okay. It seemed appropriate on the 100th episode to talk with a guest from our first episode, my friend, former colleague, and co-writer, hopefully, Lendl Calder. And to make it even better, we're joined by Sam Weinberg. When Wired Magazine started, on their masthead, they listed Marshall McLuhan, the Canadian communication theorist, as the magazine's patron saint. If McLuhan was patron saint to Wired, then Sam Weinberg is the patron saint of historically thinking. In real life, Sam Weinberg is the Margaret Jacks Professor of Education and History at Stanford University. He's the author of Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts, one of the best titles to appear in probably the last 25 years. And most recently, Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone. And we'll be talking about that book and a few other things. Gentlemen, welcome. Hello, Al. So, Sam, it's wonderful to see you again. It's good to see you, Lundell. <laughs> see you on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> so the Hitler Historical Museum, where shall we begin? <laughs> Sam, could you tell the, explain the, the anecdote of the, the Histo- Hitler Historical Museum? I know Lundell and I have both enjoyed using this on, in our classrooms. So the Hitler Historical Museum, first of all, we need to give credit to Mills Kelly, who uh, used that particular example in his book about digital history. Uh, The Hitler Historical Museum, you go to the website and it talks about itself as a uh, nonpartisan, a non-biased, objective source of information about Adolf Hitler and the rise of the Nazi party. And the language, at least on the splash page, is language that is particularly convincing to college students and to high school students who are worried about bias and worried about loaded language. So the language is very coded and very neutral. Mm -hmm. And it is a particularly good example of the dilemma that we're faced with right now when so much of the ways that we get historicized are by looking at a screen and finding information online. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a it is a great it's a great little way of entering into that subject. Lundell, when you showed that you've you've done that for your class, I remember when you you came all excited to my office and said you were going to show that to your class. And what what did you do for them? You showed them the website, and then what? I think you went. I run to- a little experiment. I'll I'll pick a student from the class to come up front. I'll pick a, one of the better students. Mm-hmm. And we do a fishbowl exercise where the rest of the class watches this student evaluate two web pages. So I say, you know, you're going to do a research paper on Adolf Hitler. You Google for Adolf Hitler. Um, I'm still actually Googling because that Hitler Museum still shows up on the first page reliably, mm-hmm. as, as does another one um, that that does not have quite the professional look as the His- Hitler Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hitler Museum, as Sam said, begins by saying history should be objective. It shouldn't be a matter of people's opinion. It should be based on evidence and, and all kinds of cool stuff like that. And the other one, the other website that's about Adolf Hitler has lots of ads <laughs> get in the way. and uh-huh. It's not as well produced. So I just say, which of these two do you think you would investigate first? And they reliably pick the. The Hitler Museum, which is Hitler.org, I believe. Is that right, Sam? It is. It's a .org site. So yeah. again, that's another another kind of important lesson for students mm-hmm. to think about is mm-hmm. that they often remember from high school that when they're evaluating a website, .org is good and .com is bad. Yes. Yeah. So they they bring to web evaluation these false beliefs that are actually 
not of their own doing. These mm -hmm. are things that they've been taught. These are things that we as educators implant in yeah. our students. <laughs> and then we, 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 you know, shake our heads and, and rub our palms together and wonder why are they doing these things? Who is responsible for this? What has exactly. happened? What is, what is wrong with these kids? So what's the uh, aha moment, uh, Lendl in class? Is that when you use uh, Google Street View? <laughs> right, and this is something I learned from Sam, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's uh, the one click. I think that was Sam's been recommending that uh, everybody learn from fact checkers how to critically evaluate uh, the kind of information you're seeing online. And one thing fact checkers do is instead of reading vertically down the page, which is what, which is what the student in my simulation will always do, mm -hmm. uh, we go read, reading laterally. Um, so I show them how to use a website like What Is to find out who is in control of this website, who owns it. And when we go there, it's a simple matter of looking for the address. Mm -hmm. This address is uh, got a street address in San Francisco. And then we use Google Earth to go look at that address. And the big reveal <laughs> is when they see that uh, the Hitler Museum is an apartment above a bodega and somewhere in San Francisco. That's it. It's just some guy with a computer in an empty apartment in a rundown part of San Francisco. This is the uh, the one click, Sam, that you talk about in the article that you should be able to to figure out the provenance of a website with just one click. That's a that's a Mills Kelly observation too, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's it's got a little bit more difficult since then. In fact, the guy from the Hitler Museum, I don't know if he has actually read that article, but. <laughs> <laughs> app has a third-party server. So the third-party server actually disguises uh -huh. where it's located and who actually registered the domain. Uh -huh. So again, this we're 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 really trying to chase after a moving target. Yeah. And so, you know, uh two or three years ago, uh using who is to actually find a registrant for a domain had some, you know, had a pretty good hit rate. Mm -hmm. But now anybody who has any kind of sophistication has their has the, the registration actually disguised. And so what you get is a third party server with some generic address. So the, the kinds of things that worked with the Hitler Museum two years ago no longer work. But I think that Lundell's larger point um, is still valid, that um, that reading laterally, taking the Hitler Museum and even uh, uh, looking at put, putting the URL into another tab and reading across what the internet is, which is a large web, mm -hmm. very quickly reveals the site to be uh, a Holocaust denial site that is linked to uh, by places like the Daily Stormer and mm -hmm. places like that. Mm -hmm. So the larger point is still correct. The, um, of course, the point of this anecdote is, is that we are bombarded, inundated by information of all kinds and yet are no better at evaluating information than we were before, uh, before we had these floods of information. Um, I was particularly, if wanted to begin by looking at the sort of second, the chapter six, which is in, um, actually not chapter six, chapter four in uh, part two of your book, Sam, which you call Turning Bloom's Taxonomy on Its Head. Um, you know, I, I was wondering, Lyndall, what you think. I wonder how many history professors actually have ever studied Bloom's taxonomy. I doubt it. Um, we might know it to we might know it as a sort of general information sort of thing, but it's not something anyone shows you in grad school, is it? Uh, not, not no, no. no. But no. They know it intuitively. Yeah. They because they believe that there's a proper sequence for learning history and it starts with learning facts first. Yeah. And well, what I found, uh, I, uh, my brother teaches at uh, university of North Carolina, Greensboro, mm -hmm. and often where people in the, in arts and science departments will encounter bloom mm -hmm. is when the center for teaching and learning comes sure. to the new assessment system <laughs> that is organized That's right. <laughs> according to the stages of bloom's taxonomy. And it's, it is as if, um, it's as if Bloom was delivered on Sinai along with the Ten Commandments. It, uh, it is interesting. I mean, just to say, be a little cynical here, that education fads come and go. How the hell did Bloom become like sort of DNA in the sort of how did it become Sinai? How did it become so embedded in the way that people think? 
Um, it's it's very interesting historical problem there, isn't it? It is. It is an interest. It is really is an interesting historical question that is worthy of a of a full length monograph. Given given the the incredible spread of Bloom, I don't think that there's an idea maybe short of IQ yeah. that has had as much currency in all places of yeah. the world. Yeah. Uh, that learning styles. Le- yeah, learning styles. But again, I think that you can go on the web and. Uh, and Dan Willingham, we have to give him a pat on the back on this. You know, he's done yeoman service with uh, New York Times op-ed columns about learning styles. That's true. But, Nobody's you know, really but, come out against Bloom. But Bloom, you know, Bloom, it's an interesting question now that you ask because he started off as the uh, the the college examiner at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. He was a, a, a psychologist, a differential psychologist, which is the term that we used to call correlational non-experimental psychologists back in the day. And he was, you know, colleagues with some very, very brilliant people. Joseph Schwab, the the geneticist, who was also a curriculum theorist mm-hmm. in the days of, of Chicago. But he, he worked with Ralph Tyler, who was the man who gave us the term behavioral objectives. <laughs> and really what Chicago, Chicago had an assessment system across different departments. And Bloom was tasked with coming up with a common assessment across the departments. And that really was the origin of this this categorization scheme. It started off as an internal tool for the College of the University of Chicago. And Hmm. oh my goodness, who would have predicted it's spread. Yeah, yeah. The Chicago people, they're, they're at the bottom of all sorts of things. Um, so it's spread, and you uh, your chapter is about turning it on its head. So what do you mean by that? Well, you know, and I think that, I think that I'll go back to something that Lundell just said. The yeah. way that, that, that Bloom, and again, I want to distinguish between Bloom, the interpretation of Bloom, mm-hmm. and the way that Bloom is translated into posters and very simple kinds of rubrics that are often pervaded by teach, unfortunately, by teaching and learning centers. Yeah. Um, where, it, you know, it begins with an unassailable truth that you need, you need material to think about before you can think, right? And so the, 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 the E.D. Hirsch people will say, try to think about nothing. It's mm-hmm. impossible to think about nothing. But to go from there to saying, to thinking that the mind is some sort of attic Mm-hmm. where we store things that we really don't have hooks for and really commit them to memory. Um, the way that some people have misinterpreted Bloom is that we first have to give students a database. Yeah. And only then can they begin to think critically uh, in the way that we think of higher order thinking or s- historical thinking. And and it it is a kind of devaluation of knowledge. Mm-hmm. That knowledge is something that is a prerequisite to all kinds of thinking rather than the terminus or the, the ultimate prize of the process of thinking. And that's what I mean by turning Bloom's uh, taxonomy on its head. So let me let me push at this a little bit. The idea, let's put this, um, I don't know, lump and Bloom, something like that. But it would be that I memorize a lot of stuff and then eventually, which is my – so – building this foundation of knowledge amounts to a five-year-old memorizing lots of things and eventually ascending the Bloom's pyramid up to understanding application analysis, synthesis, and evaluation. But first, I have to just memorize lots of crap, lots of lots of lots of things. Is that what people think when they're thinking about this? Well, I think they, um, if you're talking about historians. Yeah. A lot of those things that are in the middle Bloom's pyramid that you just rattled off, yeah. um, they don't think about that too much. <laughs> in, in that sense, they don't really know that much about Bloom's right. taxonomy. But they do know that facts have to come first. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, um, and there has to be a, some kind of a immersion or stewing in facts over four years of high school and at least one or two years of college. And then you can be expected to to think about those those things that now you know. In a, in a 300 level class, you can get to evaluate a synthesis and evaluation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, when I hear Sam say you want to turn that upside down, um, 
what that looks like in practice, I think here in our department is the first thing we want to teach students about is, is how to ask some good questions. We start with that, mm -hmm. not with facts or anything, um, not with a review of a timeline. Mm -hmm. we, we begin with knowing what's a good historical question. Mm -hmm. You know, Al, I, I want to... Uh... I want to do a shout out to Lendl here and something that he wrote about having a, a, a basic framework for understanding a historical period. Mm -hmm. um, the, what often happens when a whole bunch of facts are thrown at students is that they're not really building a foundation. Mm -hmm. what what's happening is that someone is, is throwing a whole bunch of individual bricks at them yes. that are not forming a particular pattern. And so that the means to remembering is a kind of rote stamping in memory because there is no form to what's being given, mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, the type of thing that Lundell wrote about in a, a piece that won a, a major award, uh, the, the nature of story. Mm -hmm. Story is a general framework. It is a cognitive framework. It's probably the most basic and early template for memory that we as human beings learn. And so having a story that then provides some kind of Velcro-like hooks for individual facts that give that story its meaning, yeah. that is very different from starting with the database of facts. Certainly that resonates, I'm sure, with many people's individual experience and even my own, um, just to be self-referential and, and and needlessly autobiographical. My mother is probably my, my finest uh, historical achievement uh, until I wrote a book for my mother was identifying a bust of John Paul Jones in the hallway at Mount Vernon. Um, and when I was six, I think. Uh, and I know that I only did that because I had read a story about John Paul Jones which probably had was illustrated by Houdon's bust of John Paul Jones, of which he gave a copy to George Washington. So it wasn't as if uh, my mother had been drilling me in flashcards with uh, Houdon busts of great Americans. Uh, there was a really gripping story about the Battle of Flamborough Head and the Bonham Richard sinking beneath him as he's you know battling with the Serapis and I have not yet begun to fight and all this good stuff. And then walking to Mount Vernon, click, aha, there's John Paul Jones. Uh, there's a lot of scaffolding that goes with that quote-unquote fact. That's how we know anything about anything. You know, you're you're asking about the sliding off the road on an icy interstate the other day. I'm sure there are all kinds of bricks in that moment that I've already forgotten because they don't fit the story. I've already be begun to tell myself about what happened on that icy night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I saw it worth a separate podcast or perhaps not someone complaining uh, an article. I don't know if either of you saw this about complaining about the tyranny of narrative and how historians can't get beyond narrative. Do you see that? It's like yeah. and it was provocative, but uninteresting <laughs> because in, in it's like talking about the problem of humans. We can't get beyond speech, which is true. Well, that's right. It's it's, it's self-refutational. I mean, yeah. in the process of making his brief against narrative, he told a narrative. Exactly. Um, so provocative, but ultimately not worth waste uh, one's time reading. Um, you know, I don't know about that. I enjoyed reading. I enjoyed it was provocative, <laughs> but it was uh, well. What am I supposed to do with it? You know, it's uh, well, don't tell any stories. Don't tell any stories. Um, can we talk about? Well, uh, yeah, I, Sam. I, before we leave that topic, what I'll, I'll tell you what the implication is. Yeah. If it has if it has uptake among the profession, what it will mean is a, a further diminution of professional historians' influence over the consciousness of the general public. Yes. Because they will be leaving the vacuum to uh, to amateur historians right. who will tell stories. Yeah. And uh, they will, and they will then complain about their lack of influence and why don't people recognize our anyway. We know where that would go. Um, you spend a, a, a longest chapter, uh, uh, it's a really great, what my, one of my favorites, chapter six, talking about changing history one classroom at a time. Uh, it's, as Lendl said, well, this is really Sam's autobiography, uh, which it's the story of Shegg. Professional autobiography. Professional autobiography. Um, could you tell, I mean, could you share a little bit of that? I mean, the creation of the Stanford History Education Group and sort of your uh, movement to putting really fantastic um, 
helps, I, I hesitate to say curricula, I don't know if that demeans it, but serves support for people who want to teach history differently. You've put it all online, it's for free. How did that all come about? It came about by accident. Good, like most good things. It, you know, people look at the kinds of things that we've done and, and they say, you know, they, they think that I'm, they impute some kind of special power to me, a, a wizard, a wizardry or a vision. Mm -hmm. And I say, no, it, it, yes. In, in, in a certain sense, we've sort of built an empire, but it's an accidental empire that happened because of a great deal of luck and good fortune. And, um, some extraordinary students that I've had along the way. So here's the short story. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a middle school and high school teacher. I became curious about the act of learning. I had no background in psychology. I had the, I would say, innocence of thinking that uh, in graduate schools of education, I might find an answer to people who are doing work on how we remember and how we think. Uh, and I really, out of ignorance, sent an application to Stanford and a, a, a professor there by the name of Lee Shulman saw my application and he gave me a call. I can remember it was in a February because I thought that you hear about graduate school in, in, in uh, late April. And he said to me, uh, I've looked at your application and I see you have no psychology. Have you read any psychology? And I really didn't know what to answer. And I said, well, as an undergraduate, I read Freud and I read Jung and I read some Maslow. And he said, do you know anything about American experimental psychology? And I said, no. And he said, good. <laughs> said, he said, the things that you have studied as an undergraduate which were history and philosophy, um, they will put you in good stead. Mm -hmm. All right, now let's flash forward to, uh, I finished my PhD in the psychological studies of education under Lee Shulman's tutelage. And I begin my professional career at the University of Washington in a, uh, a, a college of education in a department called educational psychology. And I was really an odd bird. I thought that all you know educational psychologists were like Lee Shulman. And then I go to I go to to this department and find out that mostly they're quantitative psychologists who really don't under, who really don't study the subject matter of learning. They study you know broader things like motivation and self regulation, things that are important, but very distant from the questions that brought to me to graduate school, which is which were. How, how do we make sense out of disparate historical documents in order to form a coherent interpretation? And why is it that some of my students could do it and, some, and most of my students were completely flummoxed given, that, given mm -hmm. that challenge? All right, now to your question. How did all this happen? <laughs> I became towed away by the undercurrent of academic rewards and started to do all of the kinds of studies that earn one tenure at a research university. And I pretty much forgot about what brought me to graduate school in the first place, which was how do I help students and how do I help the teachers who are my fellow colleagues uh, when I taught on a, in, in high school and middle school. Mm -hmm. And I had a student named Abby Reisman, who's now a professor at, at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And she, she said, and this was 2007, um, I want to do a dissertation uh, that looks at the approach that we had been teaching in our teacher education classes to students and thinking like an historian with document-based uh, uh, exercises. I want to do that in a large-scale urban school district where I prepare the teachers to teach the curriculum rather than us doing it in a kind of hothouse-like way. Mm -hmm. And so that's what she did. Now, here's the end of the story and really the beginning of the accidental empire. We, we finished the study. Uh, we had the good sense to include some uh, reading comprehension measures in high school classrooms. This was at the time of No Child Left Behind. And the students had significantly higher reading scores, which was something that the district became absolutely delighted with. They were not terribly interested in history, but boy, if you could boost reading scores through a history classroom, that really was a secret. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And they said, uh, we want to we want to extend this curriculum because we did an an experimental design, a a match control treatment control design. We want to extend this to every single history teacher in our district. This was San Francisco Unified. And I was already very much on to something else and on to my next grant, which was sort of was the way that these things went. I was already at Stanford and we we were, were going from grant to grant. And uh, I said, okay, uh, to the people in the district, if you if you want us to put this up on the web, then um, come up with some money. And I came up with this arbitrary figure of twenty thousand dollars, thinking that that really that would that would that would reveal that the emperor has no clothes. That really, the district wanted Stanford to just give them something, but they weren't really willing to have skin in the game. And lo and behold, the, they came up with the money at the end of the week. And that really was the beginning of the accidental empire because we we put up our PDFs onto the web, and after seven months, seven or eight months, we had close to I think two hundred thousand downloads. By the end of the year, we we were over a half a million downloads. So so, and we started to use again. This is this was an education for me. Um, I did not know about Google Analytics. I did not know that it was possible to follow and trail the scent of downloads. And we started to look at Google Analytics, and we were being downloaded in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Galveston, Texas, in the American International Schools in Ghana and in Shanghai. It was just something that amazed us. And and four hundred thousand of those were at Augustana College in Illinois. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So it, it really was. It, I I wish I could say Al that it it started with a grand plan because yeah. I had a vision of changing American education. Um, the things that we had done on the web with the late Roy Rosenzweig. Roy Rosenzweig was a visionary. Yeah. And and our collaboration with historical thinking matters. Well, um, that was a great. That was that was the that was the what I think introduced me to Lendl in some way or some that was around the same time I met Lendl I think when that came out. It was it was great Al but but let me tell you the the critique of it. Yeah. The critique was that it was so complex and so sophisticated that <laughs> in, instead of helping rectify some of the inequities in American education by putting high quality materials into the hands of teachers in under-resourced schools, it ended up confirming the Matthew effect. The rich got richer and the poor got poorer because the kind of bells and whistles approach that Roy and I, we were so enamored, I would say inebriated with Mm -hmm. what the web could do that we lost sight of what really needed to be done. So in our kind of follow-up studies, the people that were using historical thinking matters were the people whose students would have been just okay had they never even come across it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, but, so did you explicitly then, I mean, it was because you didn't have the money that you had for that uh, historical thinking matters. You had a lots of, a big pot of money to put all the bells and whistles together. Sheg, because you started out with 20,000 bucks, was a lot simpler and yet arguably more effective? Well, what was more effective was understanding the occupational realities Mm -hmm. of new teachers having to teach in an urban school district Mm -hmm. where they were in that Procrustean bed Mm -hmm. of a 50-minute period where the bell rang and they have 32 students. And if half of them were reading at grade level, that would be something to celebrate. So we really had to think, who is our target audience? The teachers teaching that one period of AP history where the students are going to all four-year colleges or those teachers who are trying to prepare students who in many ways, many other teachers have given up on Mm -hmm. to possibly give them the opportunity to make their way to college. And that classroom looks very different from the classroom at um, Phillips Exeter Academy. Yeah, yeah. Ludley, you want to say something about that? Because I know you've been thinking about it. Well, um, yeah, we're just starting a project that's a partnership between the American Historical Association and the John Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education. It's called the History Gateways Project. and It follows on a series of studies, uh, one in California state system schools and the other was a national study of representative uh, institutions. That it, it discovered the shocking fact that uh, the U.S. History Survey is 
one of the reasons why many students who, who are first generation to college drop out of college. It's, it's not just the U.S. History Survey. It's, it's, it's all of the so-called gateway courses that are introductions to the disciplines, you know, psychology, biology, and so forth. But the U.S. History Survey is, is more often taken by larger numbers of students than some of these other intros are. Mm-hmm. And a kid who fails the U.S. Survey is more likely than others to drop out of college soon after. So this is no longer a pedagogical issue alone that's just intellectually interesting it's it's become an issue of equity and and social justice if we at least if we believe that higher education has a role to play um in achieving justice in america so um we are working with 11 institutions in new york metro area chicago and houston to redesign the u.s introductory survey Mm -hmm. and you know this is something that i've been thinking about for 20 years ever since i first met Sam, actually. In 1999, I was involved with a program called the Carnegie Fellows Program that was led by Sam's old teacher, Lee Shulman. I'll never forget when me and six other historians were standing around talking to Lee one night, and he said, do you know um, one of my former students, Sam Weinberg? And we all looked at each other, and, you know, we're professional historians. Um, We kind of had the attitude of that famous dog will rhyme. My name is Jowett of Balliol College. If I don't know it, it isn't knowledge. Mm-hmm. We had never heard of Sam Weinberg, so we just figured he must not be worth knowing about. And we listened politely while Lee Shulman told me about your doctoral dissertation. I went to look for it later that night, but I couldn't find it because I'm not skilled at finding sources of information outside of history sources, right? And your stuff was buried at the time behind in unfamiliar places. But uh, Shulman then gave me something you had written. Forget where it was published. And I shared it with everybody else. And we thought, wow, this Weinberg guy, he's got it going on. I think we need to get to know him. And and then we, we had the opportunity to do that a few weeks later. <clears throat> so for 20 years, some of us have been plotting and scheming to redesign the introductory U.S. history survey course. Um, retailing Sam's ideas and other people's ideas to try to make that happen. And and this project, the Gateways Project, um, I think is a a breakthrough moment where we're actually going to get traction on a a large scale to um, um, get the deed done. Mm -hmm. Sam, we have minds, you know, how to reach that that student who's first time to college, who's come from an educational background that didn't emphasize how to write, for example, mm-hmm. or how to read well. And now they're in a U.S. history survey class where the professor's dumping huge amounts of information on them and expecting them to write essays about it, but but offering no help at these at these uh, competencies. Well, not, you know, not in a lecture hall of 300. That obstacle. Yeah, not in a lecture hall of 300 people. You couldn't, couldn't do that. Um, well, we may ha- we have we're going to have to figure out some way to do it because that's just a fact of life that's not going away. No, um, we, we should put uh, to Sam. Uh, I don't know if you've already done this, Lendl. This question that you and I have been kicking around, or you've been kicking, and I've been I've been listening. I uh, that um, uh, can you teach historical thinking without having students write? And I. My, I said, I think in an email that, yeah, sure you could. You can survive a long time on just water. Um, but why would you want to? Um, what you've given is one reason. If you've got an intro class with a lot of people who are doing it, it's a general ed requirement. Um, and the history department is basically being subsidized to teach uh, history classes as a general ed requirement. That's the bread and butter of a department. Um, they don't want to stop doing it for that reason. Uh, history classes, those general classes, or where we get majors. Um, we can cull majors from those classes, so we don't want to stop teaching those. So there's a, that gets into a bit of a dilemma. Can, can you teach historical thinking without requiring writing? You, you Absol- believe- ab- absolutely. Yeah. I'm eager to hear what Sam says, but yeah, my, my, my response is for sure. I first noticed this. Years ago, when I was learning think alouds with students, and I noticed 
that there was a disconnect. Sometimes students were making C's in my course were performing excellently at various uh, competencies of historical thinking that I was testing for mm -hmm. in a think aloud where they're not writing, they're just talking. And vice versa. Some of the students were making A's in my course because my courses require about an essay a week. They weren't not doing as well at thinking historically when we were just talking. And I've always been struck by that, uh, that disconnect. So actually, right now, I'm running a study to find out uh, whether writing in a history course uh, helps students become better thinkers. That's what most historians will say. Or does it get in the way, actually? Mm -hmm. And if I find that it gets in the way, that's going to open some doors to some interesting pedagogical innovations in the introductory course. But I, I'm totally with you, Sam. I, I, I mean, um, Al, look, you're talking to a guy who requires an essay a week in the I introductory know. course. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I don't want to rear students on a diet of just water, but there may be moments in the progression of a student's development where uh, less writing might mean more learning of, yeah, of what it, it, of, it's, of uh, the we're, we're emphasizing. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's um, the, the other problem is, is that we are in a position often at, at many good colleges where one of the big... Uh, deficiencies in student development up to that time is their ability to write. So we're often, at least when I've been teaching uh, intro to history, it's like, okay, I want to teach them historical thinking, but I also want to somehow bring their writing up to the, up to the ability uh, to which it should be. And the only way I know how to teach writing, the best way is to have people write a lot. So of course that creates pro that can get in the way of teaching other things. Sam, you were going to say you you said absolutely. Go ahead. You know it de it depends on on context, Al, and it depends on what our goals are, and it depends if we're talking about a uh, uh, one of the institutions in in Lendl's uh, Gateways Project, a, a CSU class at you know CSU Fullerton or mm -hmm. you know San Francisco State, where there are you know, 140 kids in the intro class and one instructor and no TAs. So what are you going to have? Uh, uh, and and the, the person's teaching a, a, a three, four teaching load, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, well, you're gonna, it, it's one thing to be at a small liberal arts college where you have history majors or a small number of kids, let's say 20 to 30 in a class in a class with 100 <laughs> to 200. Yeah. Um, what are you going to do in that kind of class? Now, it, what, again, I'm not I'm not revealing any secrets, but we know that often what happens at large state universities for the intro history classroom is that people are giving multiple choice tests. Sure. It's it's a it is a continuation of high school. Yeah. yeah. Where students where what they're doing is that they are essentially memorizing a lot of factoids that will not be retained over the long haul. And if this is the only history class that students are taking, mm -hmm. then we have to step back and ask a, a much deeper question. What are our educational goals? Mm -hmm. Are our educational goals to teach them the order of acts of the American Revolution or to fundamentally change the way that they look at the world? And, you know, I, I, I often talk about uh, this idea of sourcing that I first kind of, you know, it was it was the most evident thing that distinguished historians from very bright high school students in the first study that I did. And it's it's only been replicated on every single kind of study that I've done. The sourcing is not a technique or a strategy. It is a fundamentally it is it's an epistemological Rubicon. It is a change in the way that you think about the world mm -hmm. and about where information comes from. Mm -hmm. And you know, I believe that that is, is what an introductory history classroom should do. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's crucial content that we would, you know, if we only had one semester in a history class to change students, and we know that they're going to go from our history class and become, you know, a, a PE major or a, a uh, a business major or something that's very distant from history, then what do we want to be left from that one history classroom for that one semester, five years down it's, the line? It's, I was at absolutely sourcing. I, I've learned that on my own. I, I, I've learned that. Lendl told me that, but I learned that in the hard way. Uh, sourcing is the hardest thing to teach, and it's the most valuable thing to teach.
yeah, the question in my mind is, can can the typical student learn it in one class? Because we're finding it's very, very hard to teach this. Um, well, as you said, this this change in, in a worldview. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a change in the way that you see the world, and it's also a practice. It's a, as a, 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 like a craftsman-like practice that has to, which changes the way that you see the world. It's both and. Um, yeah. It's you know, P Piaget to, to go psychological for a second. You know, uh, talks about object constancy, and when the the human being learns object constancy, object constancy is a, a classic Piagetian task where you have an infant who's about four months old. Uh, and you have a ball and the ball goes underneath a blanket and the infant thinks that the ball is gone. And mm -hmm. at around somewhere around seven or eight months, the infant realizes that when the ball goes under the blanket, the ball is still there. It is a fundamental shift that actually is achieved in human beings much later than it is in cats. Cats learn it at about two months. Hmm. Um, and their sourcing is a, a kind of epistemological shift. And it is absolutely, when we think about what is the, again, let's go back to the introductory history class that to use uh, Lendl's example, the CSU system has an American institutions requirement. And I think it's actually two courses, not just one. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is a bottleneck. And many students, many students, you know, it, it's the place where they get stuck and they drop out because they can't navigate it. What I would want if we only had one course is I would want us to hammer away at this idea that there is no free-floating information. And and his, I can't imagine a better subject matter to do this than history. Mm -hmm. I mean, all we have to do is to think of, you know, the 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 Monroe Doctrine from from the perspective of the United States and the perspective of Mexico or mm -hmm. or you know Uruguay, mm -hmm. right? Um, and how does that how does that comport with our ideas of citizenship, where so much of how we're learning about the world is going on on a, a, the very device that we're speaking on right now, a computer, mm -hmm. and Googling something? I mean, this ties us back to the Hitler Museum, yep. right? Yep. Is the Hitler Museum, because its webpage looks good and because it, 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 it claims that it's nonpartisan, should we accept it or should we ask who is behind this before we invest a great deal of energy Mining that source. Yeah, I'm. It, we're, but, but Sam, even you have found that people who have crossed the Rubicon, professional historians, have difficulty assessing the credibility of information that's online. So that suggests this isn't just um, this isn't an easy thing to do. Okay, but can I qualify that? Yeah. <laughs> the, the the historians who had difficulty assessing information online, didn't think that they had difficulty. Their, is, their that, problem is that better was, or worse? <laughs> their problem was that they thought they were smarter than the web. Yeah. Uh -huh. They lacked humility. That, that, they, that they were importing, and again, this is a, a concept that, that I'm sure Lendl will be familiar with. You know, cognitive psychologists call it negative transfer. Hmm. They, were, they were bringing to the web very powerful ways of reading that were honed and developed and polished through reading print sources and the web plays by different rules. Mm -hmm. And so historians are like all kinds of other bright people who, when they are taken out of their subject matter area and mm -hmm. asked to evaluate sources on adolescent bullying, they will look to a set of fallible markers that often worked in print but no longer obtain on the web. Mm. Mm. Can you give an example off the top of your head? Sorry to pin you down like that, but I'm... Sure, yeah. sure, no. Um, looking at the scholarly references that are appended to a web article that has a scientific allure or a, a scientific you mm -hmm. and imputing importance to those scientific references. And... Just think about the difference between references that appear in the American uh, 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 Journal of American uh, Medical Association or the New England Journal of Medicine, where if you fudge the references, 
the reputation of the editors, the editorial board, the authors, the very enterprise of a referee journal is at stake. Mm -hmm. However, on the web, if you've got some, you know, uh, um, vitamin supplement site and you just slap some references on there, whether they are to, you know, uh, pediatrics or any other kind of, you can just cut and paste anything you want on the web. Mm-hmm. So historians taken out of their area, and let's let's take this away from historians. Mm-hmm. Let's just say smart people. Yeah. Smart people will kind of do, engage in the cognitive practices that have been useful to them in other venues and often think that they will be useful in a new venue without recognizing the fundamental difference in that new venue. We're, we're skipping all around, but I want to get back, which is fine, because this is a conversation, not an interview. Um, uh, the I want to get back to assessments, but from a different perspective. I've asked Lendl this question before, because um, people say it to me all the time when I go to non-SOTL Scholarship of Teaching and Learning uh, conferences, and I'm sitting next to someone at the bar or somewhere, and I say what I'm interested in, what I'm doing, working, oh yeah, let, I called her uncovered, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I tried that, that was okay, but you know, it all works pretty much the same, you know, lecture works pretty much. It's all, I don't believe any of that stuff. You know, that's that, how can you really assess historical learning in the classroom? Now, Lendl gets really Texan when you say that to him anymore. And, um, what would you say to someone like that? A nice guy, a nice guy. He just is just a little baffled about how you can make these assessments of historical learning in the classroom. And don't you education people, you come up with anything you want to. Discuss. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll not try to convince the person. I, I will give them, I don't know. I'll give them the, the, the picture of Thanksgiving done in, you know, in 1930s, mm-hmm. and of the, you know, the, the Wampanoag encountering the European colonists mm-hmm. uh, in 1624, I believe, mm-hmm. supposedly, and say, give it to your students. And ask them, is this a useful source for historians trying to understand the relations that obtained between these two groups in the early part of the 17th century? That's page and 133, by the way. Just go on. Here's here's 30 copies of it, and you're teaching 30 undergraduates right now. First of all, do you think that they, your students at the end of your course should be able to do this, that they can recognize that there's a problem here, mm-hmm. right? That there is, there's a problem about something that is painted over 300 years after the event. Mm-hmm. And what I would want, at least what would the question I would ask, does this guy, JLG Ferris, has he done extensive research before doing this? Or what, what's one question you would ask of the painter? Mm-hmm. And come back to me tomorrow and, and show me uh, what your students have done. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't convince the person, then the person is an ideologue who's really not open to learning. Or, or just beaten to death by life in the classroom, which, you know, what, 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 what would, Lendo, what would you say to that? <laughs> what have you said? Other than profanity, which I've heard, I've heard, I've heard, I say, draw a partner. I've heard, I've heard your responses to that question before, but go on. Yeah. I don't actually end up talk to very many people like that. Really? Anymore. You don't? Huh. Uh, there's enough people now in higher education who are really interested in these questions that yeah. I just pretty much spend most of my time talking to them huh. and, and not, uh, you know, I don't need, don't, no, I don't need to waste much time on the hard cases. Well, I think that that is the best possible. And I've given lots of stumbling answers, but I, I will go for that. Uh, page 133 of why learn history when it's already on your phone from now on. Cause that's, that's, it's a good one. You know, right. the, the, uh, this is, this is this kind of, intractable stance that says, oh, nothing can be done. Um, mm-hmm. I think about it as all or nothingism. Hmm. The the idea of, wait a second, I teach 150 students and this is a problem in batch education at State University yeah. X. And um, until we change neoliberalism and come up with a different funding model, nothing can change. Yeah. And I just, I, I just find that to be <laughs> such a, a fundamentally dead end kind of response. It, it, I do it, run it, in, it, I do run into these people. Yeah. Um, in fact, there was a, a piece that I that angered me a great deal that appeared in the uh, 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 OAH's new version of its magazine for teachers called the American Historian. Mm-hmm. But by some guy who taught in a, a community college who who kind of 
in a very undisciplined, unscholarly way, started to rip into Lendl's work and my work and other people who are trying to come up with ways to make things better. And, you know, when you know when you don't try things out that are different and you continue doing the same thing, then it confirms your belief that there can be no no change. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, what we've done with these short assessments, our, our hats, we call them historical assessments of thinking, they're meant to be done quickly. They're meant to be done uh, and used for formative assessment where you get a general idea of what students are doing. Really, there's no originality here. This is, you know, a lot of the ideas for this came from what was already going on in introductory science classes by people like the Nobel laureate, Carl Wyman, mm-hmm. who come up with these scenarios that they project on on the overhead and students with uh, student response systems, clickers, have to say, you know, okay, uh, yes, a picture is worth a thousand words and this would be useful to historians. No, there's a 311 year gap between the picture and the event. We should ask some questions. And then very quickly, you get a sense of where students are at and you think students are, are getting it. But all of a sudden, Teaching becomes an interactive process rather than lecturing for 120 minutes and thinking that they're getting it because they've been in school since kindergarten and they give you all of the body language behavioral mechanisms that shine you on. And you've repeated everything that's in the textbook, so they must be getting something. Um, Lendl, you were were talking about hats. You were talking about hats. In case your listeners haven't been to the... Stanford History Education Group website and have never seen one of these hats, I'd like to urge them to go check it out. Um, I I think that uh, the Stanford Group's hats assessment are the single most important contribution and assessment in the history of history education. I was going to say since the DBQ, but these are so much better than the advanced placement document-based question. I have to interrupt now for your readers, just for your listeners, just to let them know that that, that I am blushing at this point, yeah, and I'm is, very honored he's the, by it. He's the I color am, of I his am, purple sweatshirt. Right. I am honored. <laughs> I am really honored by, by Lendl for, for, be, and for saying that. And is... History assessment, what? Oh, think. Okay, history, okay. Um, and you, you've just replicated results, is that right? I mean, because you've been doing some hats at Augustana, Lendl. You want to talk about that as we, as we start to yeah. wind, wind it up? Three or four years ago as a department, we had just, were sharing anecdotally that it was very, very difficult to find students doing any sourcing by the time they became seniors. Yeah. We were teaching it starting at the introductory courses, but not seeing a whole lot of it in the senior theses. So we decided to start a two-year study to um, measure um, what kind of sourcing our students were capable of doing. Um, And uh, the hats that Shag had introduced had been out for a while. Some of us were already using them as formative assessments during class periods. So we took some of the hats and used them as uh, summative assessments after courses had ended. And we did this with students in introductory courses. We did it with mid-program mid, uh, students at the beginning of the history major, and then we did it again with seniors. And uh, we didn't know this, but Sam and um, his partners at Shegg were doing a similar thing with students at a couple of California state universities. And uh, you you finished up your work before we did and, and put it into print in the journal American History, right? Yeah. Yes. So when we read that when that when that article came about, we we thought fantastic. Um, now we're in a position to sort of replicate and see what we come up with. And boy, it was it was uh, the results were brutal there in Sam's study. <laughs> they showed uh, the Thanksgiving hat that we mentioned uh-huh. earlier to a group of uh, students in the introductory course. And I, I remember that the number who were proficient at the sourcing skill was 1%. And that translated to, what, two students out of a class of 200 kids or something like that. Yeah, I mean, at the, at the introductory, I mean, so they were, the they, were they, they were freshmen. And, and in that sense, it's not that big of a, uh, it, yeah. if, if this wasn't taught in the introductory course, and this was a, a fairly typical introductory course where there was a lot of other good things. I mean, students learned a lot of interesting content, but sourcing was not something that was really emphasized. There wasn't that much of a difference from what they did in high school. And that's not to be expected. Sure. 
but it was what happened after we after we tested students who ha who were uh, on their way to being majors as juniors and seniors that was the results were disconcerting. Hmm. Yeah, tell, tell them what you found. Uh, we looked at students at a very similar institution who had at least five history courses, the majority of whom were majoring in history, and uh, well over two thirds of them uh, did not show any indication of sourcing mm -hmm. okay. on a on an assessment that was originally designed for high school students. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about seniors. Yes. That's, that exactly mirrors what we found with our students. About a third of the seniors were proficient, a third were emergent, and a third had no clue what sourcing was still their senior year. And, um, you know, we were not happy with those results. So we changed how we teach sourcing, and um, we're now running the assessment again to find out if those changes have made a difference. Hmm. It's... I gave a talk at the HA this year called Sourcing is Damn Hard to Do, which is something I heard a student say after walking out on one of these assessments. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just want I, – I need to, to acknowledge our funding for this, Al and Lundell, that these hats were developed by your listeners' tax dollars okay. through the auspices of the Library of Congress. So it's um, – uh, uh, the the people who run the, the teaching with primary source program at the Library of Congress and the library itself uh, put their faith in us and have put their faith in this project as a means of getting document-based assessments using documents from the library's collection mm -hmm. into the hands of American school teachers. So um, this work does not come cheap. Uh, this work particularly in validating the usefulness of these mm -hmm. assessments. It's not something that you do, you know, in your spare time. This is something that costs money in the same way that this country pays for a great deal of high-quality research on science education through the auspices of the National Science Foundation. Um, the Library of Congress has supported our work, and I just want to acknowledge, gratefully acknowledge that funding. Well, that's a wonderful uh, synergy between the the place where they keep the, where the documents are kept in which they would like to have people continue to continue to have people read them and uh, and use them um, you had said I think I think you told uh, Lendl was saying that, that you were pleased that Lendl had done this uh, sort of this follow-up or research simultaneous research or trying attempt to replicate the research has there not been a lot of that done in the scholarship of t the teaching and learning of history there's not been a lot of it done. Again, okay. this is... Why not? Well, there's a variety of reasons, and I'm, I'm going to be speculating now and okay. so sort of telling tales out of school. Here's here's my sense. Please speculate wildly, uh, just, the, just the three of us here. You know, uh, Ann Hyde, who's now at Oklahoma, says it best. Historians suck at assessment. That was the, uh, <laughs> that was the, the title of... of the, really the, uh, a very powerful cannonball shot across the bow, right? Mm -hmm. An article in the, in the Journal of American History, uh, which I think took a great deal of boldness and a great deal of courage to write because I'm sure it did not make her colleagues. She was then at, the, at Colorado College. It didn't, she, she essentially washed her, the dirty laundry of the department in public yeah. where really, and I think it, 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 it's not something that is deeply rotten at Colorado College. It's a very fine institution. I think what she was pointing to is something that is typical at many, many history departments where uh, it's the Chinese menu version of the major. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets to teach their specialty. And the hope is that, you know, at the end of three or four years, then the student will be will become a historical thinker without any kind of summative assessment to actually check that assumption. And, and of course, it's not, we should just say, it's not just history departments who are, no. who are doing that. Um, you know, it's interesting, going back to our earlier talking about introductory courses, Dan Chambliss, who wrote the excellent book, How College Works, was on the podcast. He pointed out, this is years ago now, that if we want people to actually major in our discipline, whether it be sociology in his case or history in our case, we should have our best teachers teaching the introductory classes. And usually, of course, it's the it's the kids, the new ones in the department who've drawn the short straw, the people who are learning how to teach, you then teach that first class, you know, which is odd, an odd way of trying to attract people to our to our major. But yeah. So it's not just it's not just the history departments, but please go on. No. You know, I, I I think that that Historians look at assessment suspiciously, sure. and that many 
because it's not part of graduate school training, mm -hmm. because it's seen as, oh, something technical and mathematical. And often there is, you know, there is, uh, there's reason to think of that because assessment is often thought of as, this, is, is often, and when it's encountered in through a, a center on teaching and learning or an assessment center of a, a university, it's a generic assessment scheme where you have to kind of, that really does not touch the, the, the inner essence of the discipline. Mm -hmm. And so there is a kind of negative bias toward it of who are these number anti-intellectual number crunchers who are going to come in who know nothing about my own discipline and tell me how to assess it. So, you know, usually with stereotypes, there is a kernel of truth. And I think that's the kernel there. Mm -hmm. But it, what it also does is that, listen, it's very hard to do something that you've never been shown, you've never been given an example of what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I, I, I tip my hat to, you know, Lendl and Mills Kelly and Laura Westhoff and the people who really taken up this gauntlet and said, okay, we're going to figure out how this looks, how this stuff looks like in our particular context. That's, it takes a great deal of courage and a willingness to, to be brutally honest with the effects of your own teaching to say, wait a second, I think that because I prepared my lectures well, and because I know my subject matter deeply, and because I am a, an electric speaker and I can hold the attention of my students, they are learning. And to reveal that that's not the case, that demands a particular kind of metal, a particular yeah. kind of courage. And, not, and, you know, uh, people don't in their graduate training as historians certainly are not exposed to this. This yeah. is Jim Grossman's point, Jim Grossman's point, And he's he's I, I think he's absolutely right on this, that graduate training in history is deficient because it is still preparing people to teach at the, the very few number of our ones and not solidifying their identity as teachers, which is what most people who get PhDs who teach in colleges and universities are doing. They are teaching. Wendell, mm -hmm. do you have anything to add to that as we wrap up? Uh, no, it's about enjoy the conversation. It's wonderful to to be talking with the both of you at the same time. Um, so where does Thanks it? Setting it up now. Yeah, where do we? Where does this go from here? You said uh, the shag was all a sort of an accident, Sam. Um, so it's I'm I'm not I I guess it's impossible to ask you what accident will happen next. Um, but, uh, if this thing that Lendl is involved in is very, could be very fruitful. Um, hopefully it'll be fruitful. The work that's been done, uh, Lendl's been involved with on the AP tests will hopefully uh, be very fruitful. Um, but I, I'm curious, it, do you think, I mean, I should probably ask you Lendl that first, do you think that's going to be the next, the next big thing? And What's the, next big thing? the next big thing, like the, uh, the changes in the AP, the changes, this uh, advisory committee that you're on for the um, introductory history class. Are these the next are these the next big things in historical thinking? I can't. I have no idea what's going to be next. Yeah, well, that's what I figured. <laughs> I, I will tell you what I want to be next. I want, first of all, I want, you know, the, the, the project that Lendl's involved with, with uh, Julia Brookings and the mm -hmm. people at the AHA, it's a, it is a crucially important project to try to figure out how we're going to improve the introductory history class. Because if we don't do this, um, you know, there is a, there is a threat looming. There is a dark cloud looming. Uh, one of the suggestions in the CSU system is that if this is a gateway course, and it is, per, it is constituting a stumbling block, then let's remove the stumbling block. Yeah, that's going to be the and, e easiest thing to do for people. And at a time when our basic freedoms in this country are being assailed, when our constitutional safeguards, which we thought were sacrosanct, the, the, the pact that brings this polyglut, multi-ethnic people together, when when young people are saying, I think it's the uh, it's the Fua and Monk study that appeared in the Journal of Democracy in yeah. 2016. Yeah. When they when you have one out of six millennials saying it's a pretty it would be a good or a very good idea for the military to take over the government. Yeah. Then 
We need an American institutions requirement for every student who goes to college in this country. So it would be an absolute disaster if we said, oh, the kinds of thinking that goes on in history classrooms can be done in your business major. That would be our undoing. And so I really wish a great deal of success to this project and the energy that it needs. The other point that I would make, and here's here's uh, this will be you know this is sort of my my bottom line on on for your listeners and and where I hope that the the, the discipline will go. Right now, at most colleges and universities, uh, professors are telling their kids in the social sciences and the sciences and the humanities, uh, go online and research this thing. There is absolutely no instruction mm-hmm. on what it means to go online, short of a two-hour workshop by the college librarian, where so much material is dumped on these freshmen that none of it takes hold. We are asking our students to engage in research on the internet without a formal systematic introduction about how we tell the difference between reliable and unreliable sources. Mm -hmm. To me, this is the secret sauce of what that introductory history classroom should be doing. It should be teaching history and teaching students how to think about information that concerns them as citizens in a free society. My guest today has been Sam Weinberg and Lendl Calder. Sam is the author of Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone. Lendl is the author of, well, soon to be the author of Uncoverage. Um, which is going to be a fabulous history platform. Wow. Um, <laughs> Can we see it in galleys? No. Can we see the manuscript? Can no, we see the manuscript? Not yet. Um, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. It's an honor. Thanks for inviting us out. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 